I'd like to welcome you all to Sunday service here at Ananda Village. I am Nayaswami Parvati. This is Nayaswami Pranaba, and we're very happy to be with you today. And we wish you a very happy Mother's Day and a very happy Divine Mother's Day. So I'll read from the Rays of the One Light reading, weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita, based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. Activity versus inner communion. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. Last week we contemplated the well-known story of Martha and Mary. Traditionally, this story has been offered to show the two classic approaches to salvation, the first through action and the second through prayer. The excuse of the Marthas of this world has always been the church needs its Marthas too. Treatises, moreover, have been written to justify the Martha approach to piety, praising her self-sacrifice as, perhaps, an even higher demonstration of devotion. Thus do the unmeditative in religion try to justify themselves. Yet the fact remains that Jesus rebuked Martha. Elsewhere, moreover, he spoke of the virtue of feeding the hungry, curing the sick, and housing those who were homeless. It wasn't that he disapproved of serving people. Wrong attitude was the object of his criticism. What he was criticizing was forgetfulness of the true goal of right spiritual action. Good deeds outwardly without inner communion with God will result in good karma but will not bring final freedom from all karma. The path to inner freedom was described by Paramhansa Yogananda in these words, be always calmly active and actively calm. As it says in the Bhagavad Gita, the second chapter, he who is not shaken by anxiety during times of sorrow, nor elated during times of happiness, who is free from egoic desires and their attendant fear and anger, such an one is of steady discrimination. Do your duty in life. So counsels this great scripture elsewhere, but never lose sight of him to whom all action should be dedicated. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. to read to you one of these. 
O thou mother of all conscious things, be thou consciously receptive to my prayer. Through thee I know all that I know, and thou dost know all I know. So thou knowest my prayers. In knowing and feeling thee constantly thus, I know that thou art I, and I am thou. My little wavelet has vanished in thee. I know thee alone is all existence. Thou alone art the ever-existent. Thou dost exist now, and thou shalt be evermore. Thou art impersonal, invisible, unseen, formless, omnipresent. But thou art also personal through my love. Forever I want to worship thee as both personal and impersonal. By my devotion, I have beheld thee, sometimes as Krishna, sometimes as Christ. Personal, visible, and imprisoned in little forms, and hidden within the little temple of my love. O invisible one, as thou dost freeze part of thine unseen infinitude in the arctic ice of finitude, so thou dost appear unto me, visible and living, that I may serve thee always. I want to see thee as the ocean of all life, both with and without the ripples of creation. O creator of all things, I want to worship thee as everything. Very sweet poem. I don't think I've even read that out loud ever, so very, very sweet though, very touching. You know, Swami Kriyananda, I think, was playing with all of us when he wrote the title for the reading for today, where he says, um, activity versus intercommunion because of that word versus it's really how in a certain way from our ego we would naturally respond that these are not only different but opposites but of course they're not and I think he just wanted to play with us a little bit to make us see if we caught it uh, even before the reading happened that the point isn't that you can separate activity from your inner life. They are one and the same. And that's very, very important for us. Otherwise, our lives will be held at the periphery of what's possible for us. I've always loved and appreciated some comments that Mother Teresa of Kolkata made years ago. And she was doing an interview with some Western journalist <coughs> And she was making the comment, um, describing her order, her religious order that she founded in India, uh, and with all the sisters involved with it. And she said this very, very important point. She said, the vocation for us is being with and following God. And the work is serving the poorest of the poorest, or whatever other activity we're doing. But she said, what's important is the vocation. The work will follow if the vocation is clear. So she was making it very obvious that the vocation wasn't what they were doing. It was their experience of God that really was the significant part. When we went there on pilgrimage um, to India in 2004 and visited her, her main headquarters in Calcutta. She had left her body some years before. And we had the opportunity of meeting with one of the priests there. 
And the priest uh, was very kind in sharing um, things about Mother Teresa that weren't as public or as obvious to most people. And he commented on that in the latter part of her life, she emphasized much more of the contemplative part of spirituality and indeed started another order within her larger order. Because we all know about, again, the serviceful part that she did. And that phrase, serving the poorest of the poor, is probably the one that's universal for most people understanding her. But she very much emphasized this more contemplative inner life, having an order that was less outward active in service and much more in prayer and meditation. And for some ironic reason, the headquarters are set up in Tijuana, Mexico. I'm not quite sure how that evolved, and they didn't explain it. But I thought, yeah, that's, that's a good way to approach duality, is have something that's out of left field like that. But I remember we also visited, as most of us as pilgrims do, of course, we visit the boyhood home of Paramahans Yogananda in Calcutta, for Garpar Road. And one time we were there, and this was when uh, Hare Krishna Ghosh was still alive. He was the nephew of Paramahansa Yogananda and the son of Sanandalal Ghosh, who wrote the book Mejda about Yogananda's youth. But uh, we were just talking with him, and everyone was enjoying the vibration of the place. And there was a dining room area where we were um, fed a lunch. But, and there were, behind us was a wall with a lot of cases, display cases with glass and all sorts of items, many items from here, from all the Ananda pilgrims that brought things. So there were mugs with photos of Master on them and all sorts of things like that. And then he, he said, come here. And he pointed out these two little crosses. And they weren't large, they were just small. And he said, those are from Mother Teresa when she's come to visit. And she very much had a very good experience of Yogananda. Of course, she never met him. Um, I shouldn't say of course, but she didn't meet him. Um, But just that she felt that much of a connection that she offered these gifts to this memorial or this uh, shrine to Yogananda. And I always thought that was very good to hear because, again, we have a certain perspective. We've heard about Mother Teresa. And there's much more to her life. And also in the interview, um, she was saying this incredible point that I think probably uh, is easily overlooked. She said, it really has to do what God asks you to do. Now, of course, she didn't say that's a difficult thing to understand what God is asking you to do. But she said, if God asks you to serve the poorest of the poor, then that is what your role should be. And it's not to live in a palace or do something else. But then she said, if God asks you to live in a palace, it isn't necessarily your role to serve the poorest of the poor. And that was so starkly revealing to take it out of a a little box that I had had of her, um, that her thing was serving the poorest of the poor. That's what she felt drawn to and drew others to. But critically, the important point was tuning into the divine following God's will. And that's the point of today's reading, this idea that activity isn't separate if we really endeavor 
in our true nature and in every part of us to be with God, to make that a conscious choice. Now, I think I can honestly say that for beginners or people that have been many years on the path, that's not an easy thing. It's something we hit up against all the time. Is, it, is this real? Do we really remember God? I can say, I've forgotten many times. And it's so true. It's like the ego has this special, unique quality to it that just kind of submerges us in this netherlands of forgetting God. It's like we, we're so well-developed in forgetting <laughs> that uh, we don't even realize we've forgotten until someone at Sunday service says, by the way, <laughs> you should remember God. But this is curious, too. And Yogananda talked about this in one of his lectures that's transcribed. Uh, just remember that you've forgotten. It seems kind of absurd in a way. But as soon as you can, remember that you've forgotten God. Because then you have remembered. And it's one of these things that we can turn around that tendency to be forgetful and nurture a very real connection that, hey, even my faults, they're with you, Divine Mother. They're with you, Master. I know that uh, we all get lessons constantly in this way. It's really just a matter, are we picking up the lesson in the right way? I know for me, when I first moved here, and uh, later that year attended my first Christmas eight-hour meditation in this room. Now, at that time in 1981, this retreat wasn't functioning as a retreat. This room was functioning um, uh, for group meditations and community um, special events like the Christmas eight-hour meditation, but the rest of it was not completed, and we still had our program's uh, retreat facility up at the meditation retreat. But it was my first eight-hour meditation here, and Swami Kriyananda was sitting here leading it, and I'd done eight-hour meditations with a friend up in Canada. I'd come in 1978 and then returned to Canada and returned every year for visits. The visits were always in the summertime, so I never had the chance to meditate with the residents here. But my friend and I did these eight-hour meditations every year between the two of us, and then a few other people would come. Um, they were different than the one I had here. So, uh, but, uh, but what had happened about a month before... So these, were, these are held on typically December 23rd, that I'd injured one of my knees. And I typically always sat on the floor, either cross-legged or on a meditation bench to meditate. And I had to adapt to sitting on a chair. And for the eight-hour meditation, it was very awkward and very uncomfortable. Now, many people would say, wait a minute, chair is great. Um, but for me, it was tough. It was a tough thing to do. And, uh, and so I struggled through those eight hours um, because of the awkwardness and the pain in my knee. And, but I started feeling deeper calmness and deeper peace. And then Swami Krinanda, when he ended the meditation, this is very clear in my memory, he ended it by standing up and chanting a cappella, so without harmonium, joy, joy, joy. Joy, 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 new joy, joy. 
And this is before we had made an Italian version of Gioia, 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 Sempre Nova Gioia. So it was in English. And, uh, and I remember being so deeply touched that uh, maybe because I'd survived the meditation, I'm not sure. Um, but I, I fully feel there was obviously something more. And I couldn't even pray with Swamiji out loud when everybody else was praying because I was so moved in tears. Um, by the experience. And it was like that chant, joy, joy, joy. Just, um, it's like it encapsulated, but more than that, it expanded my sense of that inner touch. And, and it just, it was interesting because the meditation wasn't as deep as I've meditated, even up to that point in my life in 1981. But you know, the momentum, the domino effect of that meditation probably has lasted more than all the other eight-hour meditations I've had. It was like there was some grace that was there. And it was in that activity of saying, I'm going to do this in meditation, even though my body had a fair amount of resistance and that affected my, my consciousness to some degree, that there was a blessing in just that offering. Well, quite a few years later, um, for another eight-hour meditation, at that point I was... Um, briefly on staff with Master's Market, which is our store down in downtown Ananda. And uh, back then we, we closed the store for the eight hours, but then we opened it immediately afterwards. And it was my task to go and open the store. And there was pretty deep snow on the ground, which we don't see that often here. But, and I remember, I remember the deep feeling from that first meditation, 1981, because I had to leave pronto at the end of the eight-hour meditation, this, this second one I'm referring to, and run across that field, down and over to the market, and get there so that everyone else that was leisurely getting over there could shop for their Christmas meals. And I thought, I can do this in a number of ways. And there's a story about Yogananda having a similar thing when he was young, first touring and doing lectures in this country in the 1920s, that he realized he was going to be late for one of the lectures that he was offering. And he started to run, and someone said to him, don't be nervous. And Master said, one can run nervously, or one can run calmly. But if one doesn't run when he needs to, he's just being lazy. (laughs) And so it was in that attitude that I remembered the first meditation with Swamiji in this room, for eight hours in 1981 that I ran as best I could with that sense of calmness and awareness that the divine was there. We all get opportunities where that happens, that we're going to be placed in a situation where it's not so much that it has to be activity, and that's what's going to be the leading part. It's that the activity is simply the opportunity to be with God. It is never that the activity is going to be the preventative to being with God. It just is that the stakes rise to make sure the opportunity is a stronger one. The test is the opportunity. It ends if we're busy, we're swarming around like Martha and doing all this stuff. That is the way that we rise to a more fulfilling experience of bringing intercommunion with activity. And it isn't a separate thing. One of the 
the lines from that verse in the Bhagavad Gita, for some reason Swamiji didn't include it. He did in later versions of his, um, his writings on Yogananda's commentaries on the Gita. But there's a line that says, so it's talking about he who, that person that is unshaken, you know, amidst all these challenges in life. But it has this line it says that refers to one who has no need for human affection is also this holy sadhu. Or it's muni is the word. Muni is a divine soul. But to let go of the need for human affection. Well, that's an interesting one uh, to deal with in terms of activity. Because guess what? Most of our activity includes you, and you, and you. I mean, that's what human activity primarily is. Sometimes we get to do things, and, and you know, as Ramu often does, is dig some water line by himself somewhere off in the community. And we all do that at times. But guess what? Most human activity is with other humans. And, and so this line from the Bhagavad Gita is interesting to add into the mix, that to understand that it's, we should have the, the appreciation and love for human affection in others and with others. The key is not to be pulled by the need. Because it is God's love through others that we're trying to nurture on a deeper and deeper level. And we need to have that love with others as well. Because it's, it's a way that we feel it's real. That, that love isn't just uh, a sweet little thing that we have with God. I remember reading about uh, the story of this uh, Buddhist nun uh, that would travel to very... She was on pilgrimage most of her life. And she had her own little Buddha statue. And she'd go into group settings with other Buddhists and, and meditate. And um, she would light incense under, by her statue of Buddha. And then she noticed, though, that her incense smoke was drifting off to other statues of Buddha. <laughs> and she thought, hmm. And so she formed this tinfoil kind of roof over hers, so the smoke would just rise up to her Buddha. And her Buddha got blackened. So it was this distorted Buddha. And that's sort of what we do. We, we think, well, it's ours, and we need to have this relationship, or this is for me. And we probably don't say that as bluntly as that. It's more our subconscious is needling us and saying, you know, and, and, and so we put our restrictions, our conditions on that. And we end up just blackening our true soul nature. We distort it because we're not real and alive in who we are. But that friendship that we nurture with other people, if we can feel that's the divine love coming through us, touching others, and likewise, we're nurturing that love in the relationship of receiving that from others as well. And in that sense, we, we always are alive in the divine. Now, recently, for whatever reason, in my dreams, I've been energizing. Um, now, in the past, I've done Kriya in my dreams and done Hong Sa, but it was only till recently that I started to energize in my dreams. 
And maybe you've had that experience. Um, probably not, actually, but anyways, maybe you've had it. Um, but you know what's really interesting is that, uh, one, it's easier to do them. Uh, but more importantly, that uh, the same experience is there. Isn't that interesting? That I, I could feel the same amount of energization effect and, and the experience of that energy as being my reality in that dreamlike nature state. And I thought, I woke up one time when that happened, and this happened when we were just recently on the East Coast giving programs to many of our groups there, that I thought, that's very interesting. And I thought, what, what I can do here is make sure that I'm nurturing the connection, not so much the specifics of the energization or that or this, but more the energy itself. Why do I ever have to lose that as my experience? Why does sleep need to cut that off? And then I thought, well, if it's energy that I can do that with, why not the other qualities? Why not have love there? Why not have joy there? Where it never loses the links. It's always in that flow. It's always that touch. Whether in wakeful states, in deep meditation states, in dream states, in sleep states. Why don't, why don't we do that? You know what it takes? It's just our offering time and time again. It's not letting go of that offering and our commitment to follow through with the offering. You know, many times we're poised to deflect what we know is what we need to do. You know, whether it's to sit to meditate or whatever it is. We just flew back from the East Coast doing this trip, and it was um, a direct flight from uh, Baltimore, Maryland to Sacramento. So it was four hours and 40 minutes, I think, the length of time. And I don't know if you've read, but now the airlines are going to actually shrink the amount of space between your knees and the seat before you by another two inches. And we're all thinking, I'm surprised more people don't scream out loud the way it is now uh, in airlines. But um, probably had wanted to sit on a window seat, and I want to sit on the aisle seat. And so we were thinking, because the plane was filled, that maybe the seat would be empty. But the last guy <laughs> walking in, and he was a bigger than usual fellow, and he looked at it, looked at me and said, oh boy. And he sat down. And at one point, I realized I need to meditate because this is a long enough flight. And I just remember feeling, you know, I could continue with my resistance pretty easily. That was no problem. <laughs> but I realized that it wasn't going to be productive. And so I had to sit in this kind of odd way, um, like kind of like this, you know. <laughs> Because uh, so he was leaning both ways. Um, um, and so I had to do this thing, and I realized, you know, this won't necessarily be, it could be, a really deep meditation. But I thought, 
That doesn't matter. It's my placing of my consciousness, my willingness, my offering in that situation that allows me to be what it is. You know, be the change in that unique situation. And there were times when the meditation went really well, especially when he went up to go to the bathroom. Uh, and then I could relax, and I felt like, oh, I remember this, um, what it feels to be in a normal seated position. Um, but at the end of it, I just felt a real appreciation. I just felt saying to Yogananda, to Master, to Divine Mother, thank you. This is sweet of you to provide this to me. And this is where we can, in the midst of these kind of activities, uh, is say, no, I'm, I'm here with you, God. You're always with me. I'm going to do my best to be with you. And carry that through whatever's happening. It doesn't matter. You know? And then when the rough times come, they're rough only in the sense that they agitate us because they're invitations to grow. And they're spurring us on to really make the right choice, not to waver. Uh, or if we waver, we remember it's not good to waver. And so we're always picking it up. But remembering that we forget is a tool I've used a whole lot. You know, I, I wake up in the morning, I think, I'm going to remember God and Master really all day. And that doesn't happen. <laughs> but I've learned I can remember that I forgot. And in that, I nurture a relationship that's very real, very empowering, and very much a way to keep the momentum going, where my commitment is through my offering, rather than commitment of I will, it's a commitment will, I want to. I, I, I love you, God. And in the tears of my devotion, let that carry my heart and my openness always to be in whatever activity, to be in the vocation of being one with thee, God. 